The reading is taken from Matthew chapter 14, starting at verse 13, and it's on page 981 of the Church Bibles. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Do keep that passage open, page 981, the feeding of the 5,000. It's um, a very well-known miracle of Jesus. What is unusual about it, and uh, in fact it's quite unusual for any miracle or parable, to actually be recorded in each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And you can get a book called a synopsis of the Gospels, um, which have the, the different uh, evangelists' accounts in columns, so you can compare one to the other. It's a very good investment to have. I mean, I can remember, well, the one I use, I got for £1.50 in a charity shop. I looked up what, it's, what you'd have to pay today, second hand, on Amazon. Do you know that the, uh, the increase in value is 6,566%? I don't think I've ever, well, I'm sure I haven't made any investment that would have that return over 40 years. But anyway, the main return that you get is you're able to actually compare one account with another. And the differences are insightful. I mean, they're always complementary to one another rather than contradictory, but they give you the kind of full picture because you've got four people recording it. So while we're looking at Matthew, Luke, for example, tells us that Jesus was off to Bethsaida in the northeastern part of the Sea of Galilee by boat, and that the crowd, the people, they legged it around from probably the northwestern side on foot to find him. John highlights that they'd been impressed by his miracles. Matthew flags up that Jesus had compassion, but it's Mark who tells us the reason for Jesus' compassion. He writes... They were like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, 
They were really just existing. After all, what do sheep do? They just eat grass. They follow the flock no matter where. And any trouble that comes along, they panic and they rush off en masse, even if that means running over a precipice to their own destruction. Human parallels, perhaps. Matthew and Luke mention that Jesus uh, healed many, and Mark and Luke also mention that he taught them. Well, it's getting later, and there's no public transport to get them home in time for supper. And the disciples are concerned about this and they tell Jesus they ought to send them away now so that they can buy food. Well, Jesus responds by saying to the disciples, you give them food. And their response is pretty predictable. We'd say the same. How are we going to buy enough food for them all? That's what John reports them as saying. Mark mentions the cost. They say not even 200 denarii, which was about the annual wage of a labourer in those days. So you might say, in today's terms, average earnings about 28, 29k. Where are they going to find enough money there and then to feed this lot? That's if they could find somewhere to buy the stuff. Well, John specifically states that Jesus' reason for saying it is that he is testing them. Well, what's on offer? Five loaves and two fish. They might have been fresh. They may well have been dried fish. They are probably what um, is known today as St. Peter's fish, the most common one in the Sea of Galilee. John mentions that uh, they're barley loaves, But none tell you um, what kind of particular fish it was. And they're uh, told to sit down. And Luke mentions that they're to sit down in groups of 50. Mark mentions that it is on the green grass. So it's most likely in the spring, before April, uh, when rain stops until November. All mention that there were 5,000 men Matthew alone makes it clear that there were also presumably a similar number of women and probably considerably more children. And calling it the feeding of the 5,000 distinguishes it from the other feeding that Jesus did of the 4,000. So that's the account. Let's ask some questions of it. How did he feed 5,000 men women and children. That's kind of a championship league kind of crowd or even kind of the bottom end of the Premier League kind of attendance on a Saturday. How did he feed them all with just five loaves and two fish? Well, some have suggested that it is a miracle of sharing, that they passed the loaves and the fish round and nobody took too much. I think that's pretty lame. I don't think that's going to fly at all, is it? Besides which, at the end of the account, at the end of this big picnic, they collected up, it says, 12 baskets full of leftovers. That's more than they started with. 
And it says also that they all ate and were satisfied. We might say they were stuffed. So, in other words, it was a miracle of multiplication rather than of sharing. What's happening here is that fresh bread and fish are being uh, created out of nothing, ex nihilo, as the Latin writers used to say, out of nothing. So, the next question is, could such a miracle happen? Well, obviously, not usually. But then, we have a rather unique situation with Jesus, don't we? We have God on earth in human form. And how are we going to know that God in human form has turned up unless he does something extraordinary? But it mustn't be too extraordinary, otherwise we will just be compelled to submit to him. We're frightened, we're scared out of our wits. It has to be evidence enough, but still leaving us with a choice. Because love, to be love, has to be freely given. You can't compel love. You can compel obedience, but you can't compel love. What's more, when you consider it in the light of the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus, which is surely the greatest miracle in the Gospels, if you can accept that that happened, for which there is a lot of evidence, and for which numerous people over the centuries have been convinced and persuaded by, then this particular comparatively minor miracle is not so problematic especially as it's recorded in all four Gospels by the four Gospel writers, two of whom, Matthew and John, were definitely there. They saw it. One of whom, Mark, (coughs) may possibly have been there. You know in Mark's Gospel at the end when they're in the Garden of Gethsemane, that uh, Mark writes about the young man who fled off naked as if his loincloth had got caught up and he had to run off starkers. Is that Mark saying, I saw that? And if he was with the band of disciples then, is it not perhaps quite likely that he was also with them in the Galilee? Can't be certain, but it's quite likely And then there's Luke, who most likely wasn't there, but we know how he went about compiling his gospel. He talked to the eyewitnesses, and then he compiled his account. So it wasn't a miracle of sharing, it was a miracle of creating something out of nothing. If that had happened before your eyes, on that green grass in the north side of the Sea of Galilee, and you were a Jew... What would you have thought? What questions would have gone through your mind on that particular day? I suggest there'll be at least three. You'd be saying, who is this guy? Then you'd think, how's he done it? And then you'd think, what does it mean? 
Well, I have to pass on the second question. I have no idea how you create something out of nothing, but then I don't think anybody does. So we're left with, who is this guy? Which is a question of identity. And what does it mean? Which is kind of, what is it illustrating? So the identity first. Being Jewish, you have racked your frame of reference to see if there are any points in it that connect with what's happening before your eyes. For you, you would have turned to the Old Testament. You'd have gone back in time to see if there are any parallels or precedents. Maybe you go to Elijah about a thousand years before who was miraculously fed by ravens each day for a short period of his life. But that's not creating out of nothing. That's a miracle of special delivery. Or you go further back to the time of the wilderness wanderings and the promise and the realisation, because God keeps his promises, that manna would turn up every morning for you to eat as you wandered through the wilderness. But again, Moses isn't creating it out of nothing. It is just arriving. God provides it each day. So you'd have to travel even further back in time, right back to the very beginning of your scriptures, to the very beginning of time itself. And you read, in the beginning, God created. Only God can create something out of nothing. So who is this guy who does greater miracles than even the greatest prophets of the Old Testament? greater than Elijah, greater than Moses. Well, everything is pointing in one direction, isn't it? But you probably couldn't, wouldn't be able to bring yourself to even say it. So stupendous would such a claim be that God is here in human form in Jesus from Nazareth in front of you. Such a conclusion was not in your frame of reference and yet the evidence was compelling you to rethink. Okay then, something divine is going on and Jesus is like no one else that has ever pitched up. Could he be God? The question of identity. Well, we move on to what's meant by what he's doing. What do we make of it? What does it mean? What is Jesus using it to illustrate? Well, they'd have known God's plan, uh, his divine drama revealed to Abraham 2,000 years before, 4,000 years ago for us. In Genesis 12, God's plan through Abraham was that his descendants, uh, that through his descendants, all the peoples of the world would come into a familial relationship with God and be blessed. In fact, earlier in Matthew's Gospel 8, 11, at the healing of the Roman centurion's servant, a Gentile, Jesus said, 
I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Middle Eastern people are noted for their gift of hospitality. They do it to welcome you. It's a way of forming and strengthening their relationship with you. At the end of time, in Revelation 19.9, we read, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now that's a reference to Jesus, the Lamb, who in his sacrifice for sin was like the Passover Lamb that had been slaughtered and whose blood was shed so as to cover the sins of the Israelites as the angel of death passed through them at the time of the Exodus. This hope of a great banquet at the end of time is made explicit in the book of Revelation. But it was a theme that developed all the way through Old Testament history. So, for example, in Isaiah 25.6, written in the 8th century BC, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. In other words, no bits in it. Well, could this be at least the start of the Messianic banquet? The first course, at least, even if not the main course just yet? Well, the questions were raised. Jesus was later to make it pretty clear that this was what was happening in Matthew 22 and the parable of the wedding feast. Luke mentions it as well. Let's turn to his account. It's page 1048, Luke 14, verse 16 to 24. So page 1048, Luke's account of the parable of the great banquet. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just brought, bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I've just got married so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, What you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in, so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get to taste my banquet. Now in those days, in terms of their wedding preparation, um, well, they had a long run up, just as we do. But their celebration lasted quite a number of days. It was a great feast, a great banquet that the family were putting on. 
And well in advance, invitations would go out. Save the day, we want you to come. Don't ever send out those cards and then not invite the person. I had that happen to me once, really. So, but it's um, not a good idea. Um, well then, on the day of the wedding, they would obviously take time to get everything kind of um, you know, cooked and prepared. And the servants would then go out and tell those who'd been invited that, hey, it's ready, the time has come. You know, get togged up and come and join us. But although they'd been invited well in advance, they now make their excuses. And they're failing to see that the kingdom of heaven has now come in the person of Jesus. That the banquet is now getting underway. But although they've been expecting it, because prophets like Isaiah had given them ample notice, they start turning down the invitation. They don't want to attend. I've bought a field. Well, having a roof over one's head is really rather important. And there is, of course, the pleasure involved in making your home your own. But property can become an obsession which shifts our focus and eats up our time. I've bought five yoke of oxen. For many of you, you need some wheels to get you to work or to go and visit family and friends on a day like Mothering Sunday. I read the story once of um, a celebrity who bought his, his son on his 16th birthday, it's in America, I think you can drive at that age in there, a Maybach car. The price is variously reported as being between about a quarter of a million pounds and 300,000. Well, it's not much difference, I suppose, if you've got that kind of loot. But don't covet. One sports car journalist described it as one of the most overpriced and disappointing in the luxury car market. And you probably never heard of Maybach because they went defunct. They were subsumed within Mercedes-Benz. I've married a wife. Now, it was once upon a time that you, if you're a vicar, you get a young couple would get uh, married and they tell you just before they're getting married they're going to stop doing any kind of service that they do in the life of the church. And they quote you a particular verse out of the Old Testament. But context is everything. There they would have been removed from their new wife and taken away, miles and miles away, to fight. It is the separation of the newlywed which is to be avoided. I'm sure it's true of many of you, as it was of my wife and I, that when we got married, we did certain things, in our case, a house group and you know, youth work, together. By doing it together... It actually strengthens your new relationship. Now all these things, a home, transport for work, a marriage partner, are all important. But there is a pecking order 
And none of them is higher than accepting the invitation to enter the kingdom of heaven, to enter into eternal life, to enter into everlasting life, like a great feast, like an everlasting banquet with Christ himself. Jesus was telling this parable to Jewish leaders who knew that the first invitations had gone out. They knew the prophets had been talking about this. But they are now knowingly rejecting the second invitation from Jesus when he says that time has now come, the party is now to begin but they declined. So the master, God himself, said, go out to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. They were the outcasts, the unclean of Jewish society. But having done that, there was still room. And then the master says, go out into the highways and hedges and in one version, compel them by which that has been misused in the Christian history in the past, having forced conversions. But it really means strongly persuade people to come in that they may be filled. And that's us, the non-Jews. And the invitation stands for all, Jew and Gentile alike today, for us to accept it. To turn down the invitation means that we miss out. We'll never go. We'll not join in. We'll be left out. But the choice will be ours. Of course, we only get the starters if we accept. Which we do just like any invitation. We receive it. We say, yes, I'd love to come. No, I don't want to miss out. I'm confident that you're able to provide what you're promised on that day. Please count me in. Everything else, however important, takes second place to that overriding response to the invitation to enter the kingdom of heaven, to join in the great banquet and to be with Christ forever. That is a truly great prospect. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, miracle of Jesus and we thank you how it identifies who he is and it along with accompanying parables illustrates what it is he's come to do and we thank you that you make this invitation to all. We pray that we might just have a little check this morning to make sure we have responded, that we can look forward to it and that we get a taste of it now. In your name we pray. Amen.